podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We've got another outstanding guest this week. He is a three-time champion of the United States, three-time champion of the Ukraine, and best known these days as a prolific and acclaimed author and chess teacher, GM Lev Albert. Thank you for joining us on Perpetual Chess. My pleasure, Bill. So I'm pretty excited to have you as a guest, Lev. And among the many topics we want to talk about, I feel like you're a perfect person to sort of set the scene for the upcoming World Championships because you wrote this incredible book about the last World Championship, Carlson vs. Karyakin. And to be fair, you wrote it with your co-authors, John Miller and the esteemed Vladimir Kramnik. Uh, so how do you compare, how do you anticipate this World Championship versus the last versus the last one? Well, they certainly would be different. Uh, uh, the constant is Magnus Carlsen. Uh, his opponents would be very different people. Uh, Sergei Karyakin and uh, Fabiana Caruana, they both are great players, but they're certainly very different players. Uh, about Karyakin, I spoke a lot and wrote a lot about it in this book. I certainly can discuss it with you right now, but mostly your uh, listeners are familiar with Karyakin. He is uh, great, uh, well, he's great in defense. Uh, he's very, uh, he's also great in critical situation. In other words, he usually doesn't, he performs the best when uh, it demanded, in the, in the decisive game, decisive events like World Championship match. That's why uh, before the match, I felt that his chances are practically as good as Carson's chances even if Carson was higher by rating almost uh, close to, I guess, 60 or 80 points. Uh, Fabiana is different. Fabiana is a more classic player. He's good at almost everything. He performs very well, both in decisive events, but also in normal events. Um, again, Carson is somewhat higher by rating, but, uh, but Carvana has shown, uh, shown one time after another that he can... Uh, when he's in good shape, he can beat anybody and he can win a big tournament ahead of anybody, including Carson. Uh, I think that if, uh, in case of Karyakin, I still was a little bit close, uh, especially considering the blitz at the end, where, where Carson was stronger, uh, a little bit stronger in both blitz and active chess, it wouldn't be so with Karada. So with Karyakin, I saw chances are like 51 to 49 in favor of Carson. With Karada, I would say it's 50-50 or maybe even very slight plus for Karada. Uh, mostly because Karada would be hungrier than Carson. Carson already was there and he was, uh, he is world champion. He has been world champion for several years. So he is not that hungry, I would say. Uh, so this, uh, this may give Karada some small extra chance. Uh, extra plus. 
Otherwise, I think they are different, but they are quite ev- evenly measured. And we can expect a very interesting fight, probably even more spectacular than the fight with, with Karyakin, because, because, again, in, this, in the last match uh, with Karyakin, Karyakin adopted kind of uh, defensive posture. He was trying to win on counterattacks and almost did. Uh, came close to winning on counterattacks. While with Karada, we can expect more straightforward play on the part of Karada. So I would expect more, even I would expect more wins in this match. In the, in the Carson Karakin, uh, from 12 first games, actual match games, there was only one win on each side. Here, I wouldn't be surprised if it would be if the potential winner of the match would win at least two games and say lose one. Or if it would be, say, three to one, it also wouldn't come as a big surprise to me. So it would be, I think, a, bit, a bit more resultative. Um, otherwise, again, I'm sure it would be a very, very exciting match. Certainly, additional interest is because Carolina is an American player. Uh, so it would be sort of very, very interesting match to, to watch for me, especially because I have heard about Karada for almost, uh, well, probably 12 years when he just started playing chess because one of my students, Robert de Gregoria, was his, na- was his neighbor and friend of his parents. So I heard about the Wonder Boy since he was uh, six or seven. And then, of course, he was working with my friends, uh, starting with Bruce Pendelfini, and then with Byron Scher, my good friend from Russia, and then with Alex, with Boris Lotnik in Spain, my another good friend from Russia, then with Alex Sherdin, my friend and quarter of my book on Turk. So, in other words, I heard all the time about Karana, that's why I have kind of extra additional uh, interest as you mentioned, uh, while again, I know Carson, and his nice fellow, and his nice family, but... Uh, both as an American and as someone who knows so much about Karana, I would be kind of a little bit rooting for him. Well, just hearing you talk about it gets me excited for the match. I'm also really looking forward to it, and, and it should be quite quite entertaining and definitely does add uh, add an element of intrigue that it's a different matchup and an American player. And, yeah, it is interesting how uh, how he's – We've been hearing about him forever. I also lived in New York when he was a young kid, and you know, you would hear about this this young up and coming player, um, along with Robert Hess at the time. But it's so rare that, obviously, since only two people can play for the World Championship, you hear about strong young phenoms all the time. But for them to actually ascend to the highest stage is exciting to see. Uh, so, Lev, let's bring it back a little bit to your book about the previous World Championship, because I do feel like that going into detail about that also, it, it will continue to help set the scene. Um, so at what point did you have the idea that you wanted to write like the definitive match book about the Carlson versus Karyakin match? You know, um, when I was uh, assured by Kirsan and Ujidafi, the president, uh, that the match will take place in New York, and when I later learned that Karyakin would be the challenger, I immediately began to think about making the book, because I knew that in New York I will have a rare opportunity to attend games, to talk with, if not players, to talk with coaches, to talk with 
other grand masters to uh, to see talk to commentators like uh, Jude Polgar, uh, and so it would be to analyze games within process. Uh, so it would be a, a real first hand experience, which would help me to make a truly great book. Uh, and my ideal was my model was a book like. Uh, Talbot Winnick 1960, uh, or speaking about Kansas matches like Zurich 53, but bro- both by David Bronstein and also also a great book on the same event by Miguel Neiderf. So I want to make a book uh, which would be of interest for players who are themselves top players in the world, who potential of few current or future world championship match players. But also the book, which would be instructive and exciting for for club players, and uh, um, I also use it to make the book really, really great. Uh, and, uh, uh, and otherwise, I wouldn't undertake this enterprise because I also knew that this book is probably not the best money maker. That uh, it would require a lot of investment, mostly of time. And uh, the reward will be not as good as say, a reward for writing, say, a book on Bank and Gambit or, uh, or some other opening. Um, so I, uh, so also greater responsibility uh, when you write about great, real, truly great players. So to make the book really great, I knew I need uh, a, a partner who himself was a world champion. And not simply a partner, but a concrete person, Vladimir Kramnik, whom I know for many years, and we are good friends for many years. And he's not only a great player, great champion, uh, one of the most important champions, but he also is a deep thinker and very good writer on his own. So I thought that with Kramnik contributing, we really can make it a super book. So I contacted Kramnik. And he told me, you know, Lev, I'm quite busy because I'm, you know, play, preparing myself for various uh, events, including future world championship, which he sort of wish him best of luck. Uh, but he said, if it would be something really exciting, uh, let's, watch, let's, 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 let's see how it goes. If it's really very exciting match, then I would be glad to do it. So at some point in the match, he told me, you know, Lev, I think it's kind of something I would like to do. And... Uh, at this moment, we made kind of decision to go ahead, and uh, it's, it's then I found another person who became a essential part of my team, my co-author, John Krumbier, and this is how we started uh, working on the book. Yeah, and it's got a format that was new to me, at least, in that, I mean, the, the analysis of the games is sort of the meat of the book, but... And you don't just present them in a typical way in that you have uh, what you call Vlad's take, where he, he interjects uh, little insights about the openings and about the psychology of the match and about missed opportunities. And it, it just adds an incredible element to the book. Uh, the other thing that I really liked was the the evaluation graphs, where at the conclusion of the analysis of each game, you uh, you just present a graph that shows uh, how the computer evaluated the position through the course of the game. So it's like a... Um, visual representation of sort of the story arc of the game. So once you once you had the pieces in place where you had John Krumeller collaborating with you and uh, Vladimir Kramnik ready to add his insight, how did you decide on okay, formatting? Okay, we got together with John. John is my old friend. John has been my student for many years. And uh, 
start working with him when he was an expert. He soon became an, a, a master, and really strong master, like around 2300 master. And his understanding of chess is really on grandmaster level. Uh, uh, so, so John is also a great expert in computers. He is co-founder of uh, successful computer uh, internet uh, uh, of computer computer company, and he is uh, he is really great with all kinds of computers, including chess computers. So uh, John and I begin uh, decided how we make decision in principle to start working on the book. Uh, Initially, I didn't really want to overwork Vladimir. Initially, I thought that Vladimir would give me a kind of brief overview of each game. I didn't say anything he really wanted to say, but basically a brief over, over, overview of each game, plus some maybe general uh, consideration about each player, about world championships and so on. And uh, so we, we had a session by, after some exchanges by phone or email, we have a session uh, by Skype, and the usual session took uh, with John uh, and me and Vladimir, uh, on, on, uh, John and I in my apartment, Vladimir in Switzerland, where he lives, and the session took almost 10 hours, with maybe short breaks uh, for 10-15 minutes, like two or three breaks for us to get you know, refreshed and whatever, and to have a bite. Uh, and uh, so Vladimir contributed uh, much more than we initially planned. Because after this first session, we had additional session for several hours. And then uh, it was not in English because Vladimir's English is quite good. But then John had to decipher. John was taking notes, but also it was all recorded. So John later had it all uh, printed. Then we edited it. We came with questions, follow-up questions. So I took another session, as I mentioned. And uh, so when, and then you, when John printed like all 44 pages, single size. So it was, as I said, like maybe four times bigger than I anticipated. So it wasn't just a short review of each game. It was much, 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 much more. So it was like a treasure. And uh, then there was a question how to use this treasure. So then we, we decided that uh, the best way to do it is to incorporate it in the text in the right way. This, of course, took a lot of John's time, a lot of my time, but I think it was time well spent because, again, it was a real pleasure to work with uh, Ludibir's uh, work, with Ludibir's uh, thoughts. And also, Vladimir was very, very cooperative. Uh, so whenever we had any kind of follow-up question, he was very eager to answer. In fact, he was sort of pressuring us to give him more work. He was willing, really eager to check us on each and every state. Like when we started typesetting the book, he was checking the book on typesetting per state. When the book was already done, fully done, everything was done, he double check it again and not only out not only his own text but he read the entire text and give me some suggestions uh, but of course mostly uh, of course he work on polishing his own text he really try to polish it very very well and in our case we had very good 
Besides John and me, we also had very good editors and contributors like Al Lawrence, with whom I usually work on my books. Also, we had an excellent editor, uh, Dan Lucas, uh, who, by the way, is his birthday today. So I, I can congratulate you on his birthday. Dan Lucas is <coughs> the chief editor of Chess Life, who edits my columns. Uh, so I already was used to work with him, but he certainly, here we work in a little bit different capacity, but he provided us with excellent, with excellent suggestions. Um, yeah, and good uh, historical yes. context in the uh, introduction and conclusion as well. Yeah, exactly, and so, so that's what we did for Vladimir. We provided him with very good text, but he still wasn't always happy. He said, look, shouldn't we use this word? Shouldn't we use better that word? So he was involved up to the very, very, very end. So uh, so this is how we work with Vladimir. As far as uh, John, uh, uh, John and I, again, we discussed uh, L. And then we discuss the formats, we try different formats. Uh, we decided to make the book uh, really user-friendly, so we use several colors. Uh, we make it e- too e- easy to open. And uh, we also, I also like, as you, this idea of having the graph at the end of the game. And here is the computer graph, evaluation graph. And this, by the way, is to some extent... As I mentioned before, one of the reasons I want to make this book is because I was there. And this is one of the ideas I got from watching the game, because as you may remember, during the game, they were, uh, when I was, uh, say, in this uh, hospitality room or whatever, in whatever room I was, uh, journalist room, they had, uh, um, they showed the position, but they also showed evaluation by computer. And uh, that evaluation wasn't really always perfect because it was kind of quick evaluation, but still it gives it gives some idea where the game stands. <laughs> so then, uh, and when, uh, when we, and then we decided, John and I, that if we give it in the end of the game, it would give to people some quick overview of what happened in this game. But this idea was very. Uh, familiar to me. I, in fact, I recommended this idea of making graphs of the game. I suggested almost 30 years ago huh. uh, with Jeff Kastner. When we, it was well, well before computers, or rather before strong computers. And you make suggestion to uh, make evaluation of positions and then to make a graph which represent, uh, which shows very visually how the, uh, how the fight was fought in this game. So this time we, of course, with with computer, we use the same evaluation which was used by uh, computers in the tournament hall. In the tournament hall, and also, um, also as I mentioned, John is great expert in computers, so we were able to get most from computers. We were using different computers whenever necessary, and this really where you have to be an expert on using those chess computers. Uh, and so what we did, we, uh, whenever position was still unclear, we'll give computer more time to sing, like let him sing overnight. We were using different machines and comparing the analysis. Uh, in, many, in many cases, I would ask some of the great players, Kramnik, of course, but also on some occasion, I asked Boris Gelfand or Boris Gulko, uh, Sam Palatik, 
Robert Jujikashvili asked their opinions about certain positions and said if they should be shown them to computers. So this is, uh, in fact, in some cases, as we, as we mentioned in the book, <coughs> that is one position <coughs> which computer initially gives. I think it was in the game three, a computer was giving certain position as White is winning because White has two extra pawn, while in fact White is in Sukhsong, no, no, not really in Sukhsong, but White cannot improve his position, and Black can, and in fact Black is winning, not White. And in several cases, in game four, where a computer kept giving White uh, two, at least one pawn advantage, uh, position was already dead draw. Uh, so uh, we tried to get best of computers, but we were not fully dependent on computers. We try, we use it in, in I would say, in creative way, and it, uh, well, uh, we were not uh, slaves to computers, so to speak. Okay. Yeah, and you guys also build on the analysis that Anish Giri did for New in Chess. So yes. it's a nice blend of like deep engine analysis with uh, the the human super GM perspective. Yes, exactly. We use sort of Giri's analysis. We are using Jill Polgar comments, uh, which I observed firsthand because she was doing it uh, in the tournament hall for, for, for the visitors. Uh, I also uh, we also use materials from. British Chess Magazine from Chess Life, from a new magazine uh, called, I forgot the exact name, I think it's called American Chess, which uh, where the Peter Tambora is one of the editors. Uh, they also had some good commentators. And of course, we also used uh, something which was easy available for me than for John Krumier, because I'm a Russian-speaking person. I sort of used 64 and another Russian sites and publications for comments by uh, by Russian grandmasters. Yeah, so for any excuse me for any listeners who haven't checked out this book, it's a great little warm up for the World Championship as as it gets closer and closer. So, Lev, you mentioned that you've you've known Vlad Kramnik a long time. So, I just out of curiosity, do you do you remember first encountering uh, yes, him? Yes, I remember he was a very tall boy of about 14. Uh, tall, almost as I, as a, uh, like almost, uh, not yet six feet tall, but close to it at 14. And at the time he was student at, of Batvinik school. And Batvinik, I, I remember talking to Batvinik by phone, Batvinik was very proud of him and predicted that he would be the next world champion. Uh, at that time, um, he was visiting, I think it was in one of the events which Gary Kasparov conducted. Uh, when he was running a group called GMA, so it was some in some uh, in eighteen ninety, and uh, Kasparov also told me that he is one of our Kasparov at the time was also working with Batvinik on this uh, on Batvinik's um, school for for very talented young players, where Kasparov himself was raised. Kasparov told me, oh, he is a great, uh, you know, great player, would become soon. A very strong master. How unusual! Like, how common was it for a Botvinnik to get excited about a student and and tell you about them? Well, uh, not, uh, he, he, he was very usually he was a great uh, predictor. He, um, uh, for instance, when Kasparov was in his group, when he first uh, saw Kasparov, he was eleven. Again, at the time we already were friendly with Botvinnik. It was yeah. 
74-75, so he immediately told me I have a great boy from Baku. Hmm. <coughs> and he even showed me some of his uh, discoveries and openings, some of his analysis. In fact, I remember Matvini gave him to analyze his own game with Bobby Fischer, which Matvini was put down and back and draw. So Kaspara found some very interesting ways uh, make even Matvini's analysis uh, kind of enlarge them and make them deeper and more precise. Uh, so Matvini was very proud and very impressed. So I remember he certainly predicted Kasparov to be a great player and the world champion, and he equally predicted for Kramnik. Hmm. And I know that you've mentioned in your writing, for both for, I think it might have been in uh, Chess Life magazine, um, uh, and across your books, that you, you were good friends with Botvinnik and got a chance to talk to him about, like, how he ranked players historically and stuff. So do you have any any standout stories from uh, all the time you spent with uh, that yes, legendary chess player? Tvinik and I became very good friends, which was a little bit uh, uh, a little bit unusual, our friendship, because we were of kind of very different generations. Uh, but Tvinik was born in 19... was born in, the, in, 19, uh, in 1910, 1911. <laughs> I was born in 1945, so it was a big, big, big age difference, and also a difference in our positions. And, and, uh, also, he lived in Bosco, he lived in Odessa. Uh, when, when uh, at the time we became friends, he already was ex-world champion for, uh, for, for almost eight years. And I was strong master, but only a master. But somehow we uh, uh, we got along when we had chance to meet informally, and just it was he was visiting my my city of Odessa, and he was and uh, I was one of his guides, and we kind of could get along very well and like each other, so we continued to communicate by mail, by phone. So next time I went to Moscow. I came to see him, and it continued for for many years before I left the Soviet Union. And uh, uh, but he was never my former coach, um, and but but he gave me very very many good advices. And um, uh, what uh, what can in fact some people were surprised by our friendship. And there were some people, especially in the West, but even in the Soviet Union, some people believed very wrongly that Batvinik was a communist, that he was uh, Stalinist, and, this, and that which was certainly not true. As most Soviet people, he despised the Soviet regime, and this, those views we certainly shared and often discussed. Uh, but what can be approved of by words, because of course today, Anyone can say anything about Botvinnik. Everyone can say that he was his best friend and confident. But when Botvinnik came to America in 1983, there was uh, he came. He was a guest of organizer of World Computer Championship because Botvinnik was also a creator of very good, very interesting uh, chess playing computer program. So when Botvinnik came here. He contacted me through a mutual friend. Of course, I went to see him. And I, at the time, was officially kind of the 
criminal in Soviet Union, the enemy of Soviet state, hmm. under sentence of 10 or 15 years in, in currently for, in, in jail and so on. Um, and I was very active in anti-Soviet activities, anti-Soviet activities. So for Botvinnik was certainly really dangerous to meet me, but he was not only wanted to meet me, but he tried to show it. He, uh, he insisted for me to accompany him to meet, uh, for instance, people who were doing an interview for him for Chess Life. And then when there was a photograph taken in Bad Marshall Chess Club with Botvinnik and several other grandmasters, Arthur Bisgaier was there and uh, Sebereshevsky was there, so, but we, uh, and we were all drinking champagne. So when photographer began to make picture, I stood aside. And the Phoenix said, oh, you have, you have, come in, come in. I said, I said Michael, uh, this picture would be in the magazine. The magazine will go to Soviet Union. You will have problems because of me. Oh, he said, come on. What they can do to me? They will just let me next time to travel, you know, to travel abroad. But, you know, I'm an old man. I'm already tired of travels. It's not a big deal, okay. And uh, well, so I'm just saying that if he were, if he were really, uh, you know, a true communist, a true Stalinist or whatever, why he would be seeking open, at least open contacts with someone who was openly anti-communist and anti-Sovietic and so on. He obviously was not. And since then, we never saw each other, unfortunately. But we communicated, I called him, he called me. I met his nephew, Igor, Igor Batvinik, who was his assistant in his last years of life and continued his uh, life, uh, uh, how to say, life in divas with chess, in computer chess. So Igor Batvinik was on several occasions in New York. We also became good friends and I helped him with various projects which he was taking on behalf of his uh, of his uncle. So again, but I learned a lot from him. And it's not all that I learned a lot from him. He was a very pleasant person to deal with. And uh, I simply enjoy 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 being his uh, enjoy being his friends. And I certainly learned from him many things, not only about chess per se, chess moves, uh, but also how to approach chess. And uh, his characteristic of various players were very interesting, including characteristic of, uh, you know, of personalities like Lasker, Kefablanka, and you know, others. Uh, so, so also, to just to make one quick observation, of, I knew personal world champions, starting with my Max Oivik, who was world champion number five, I, of course, I, I knew all new champions like Carson. Uh, I knew, of course, I, I, I played with Allen, but Allen was only 17. Uh, it was in 1988. Uh, so I knew really all world champions, with many of them I played, uh, the lines played. Uh, and my overall impression is that not only they all were certainly great players, but most of them were also very most interesting and also generally good people. I can name only two persons whom I wouldn't consider a good person, but still the, those were great players. So even though I don't consider them good people, good persons, I still enjoy their games and their analysis. 
Well, you can name them, but well, we can name, well, can name them. So it's not a surprise. One of them is our old countryman, Bobby Fisher, with whom I was. Yeah, I would, I would have guessed that. <laughs> with whom I was in touch, and uh, uh, he's certainly an interesting personality. Uh, I arranged for my some of my students to meet him. I did it through Boris Spassky, uh, who is uh, who, uh, who was remaining Bobby Fisher, very close friend till till day Fisher died. <laughs> but why consider him not a good person? It's not really because of, you know, even of his anti-American, so anti-Israeli, or anti-Jewish statements, um, because he was crazy at the time. But if you look at his uh, life, when he even be, before he became a kind of nutcase, when he was still more or less uh, normal uh, mentally, uh, he wasn't a nice person, to say the least. Like how he treated his own coach, uh, uh, Collins, who gave him a lot, and when Fisher became world champion, Collins got an offer from this big publisher to write a book on chess, how to teach chess, and they expected that Fisher would write an introduction or at least give a blurb, and Fisher categorically said no, 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 and in fact uh, uh, gave kind of to the press quite negative uh, comments about the book, or why you, or about Collins himself, or why you care about him, who is this Collins, you know, who knows nothing about chess, come on, you should write about me, you know, something like that. And this reminds me of him through his own life, all, all, through his own life, when uh, you probably read the story, that when he was arrested in, the, in Japan, uh, and, uh, uh, the, uh, the Icelandic policeman who was his guard in 1972 when he played match with Spassky in Iceland, the Icelandic policeman at the time retired by name Sammy, uh, whom I met when I played myself chess in Iceland in mid-80s. <laughs> a very nice man, very kind of plain man, not, not rich man, not a politician. A policeman, a retired policeman. Uh, he decided to help Bobby. He started a big campaign in Iceland, which eventually ended by Icelandic parliament giving Fisher uh, the citizenship of Iceland. And therefore, Japanese released Fisher into Icelandic custody. So rather being extradited to the United States, which, uh, where he could be extradited and get punished for some tax violation or whatever, uh, he was, uh, well allowed to go to, to, to Iceland, where he was received as a great hero and so on. And, uh, and uh, of course, there was movies about Fisher made in Iceland. But then one Icelandic company decided to make a movie about this fellow, a semi-policeman, just you know, to show a normal, a simple man. And this was a movie about semi. And, uh, and not about Fisher, who already has his share of movies. So make a movie about semi, and Fisher was simply asked to appear in this movie very briefly. And Fisher didn't like it. And he didn't like the Sabian hero of the movie. And he didn't like the Sabian was paid something, not much, for for playing himself in the movie. So he basically, he not only he, uh, uh, he, he declined to play any part, do anything with this movie, but he even threatened to sue them because uh, like they're making money on his own story. Um, so it's, uh, 
and he became <coughs> he became very eager pro Nazi heroes or anti-Semitic article. We really no one wanted him to write because for you know for Germans Russian Alihain wasn't really a great example of uh, of a perfect Aryan man. We really want him we're happy to have him in Europe to play chess, to give symbols in hospitals and so on, but he wanted to prove that he is he, he wanted to be more royal than the king, more more Catholic than the Pope. Uh, and this this is really made him from what I hear from people who knew him personally, like Botvinik, not a very pleasant man. But uh, he certainly was a great player, no, no doubt about it. But again, my overall point is that if you look at chess players who were champions, uh, Steinitz, Lasker, Svoblanka, if you look at all this group, uh, Kasparov, Karpov, <coughs> uh, Kramnik, of course, uh, Stahl, generally speaking, those were normal people, and mostly good people. And also some of them were remarkable people even outside of chess, like uh, Kramnik, for instance, Batvinik, definitely, Capablanca, definitely, Lasker, Steinitz. Yeah. Yeah, I recently had I am Saravanan from India <coughs> on, and he's uh, old friends with Anand, and he was, he was telling stories about... Uh, Anand's uh, vast knowledge of the world beyond chess. So I think. Oh uh, yes, he... <laughs> I don't, 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 I don't know Anand so well personally. Even if you play with him and spend some time uh, when you first time met at the interzonal tournament, but I know a lot about him from uh, my friends who were his coaches, including uh, Mark Dvoretsky, and they all told me that he is uh, sort of very, very interesting person. A very good person also outside chess. Well, th- those were some amazing stories, Lev. I could listen to you tell stories for hours, but, it's my but we, have so m- right. we have so many topics to, to discuss. I, I also want to talk about your other books. Um, I mean, you're, you're such a prolific author. You really, at, at, around the time you retired from active competing in chess, you really stepped up your, your output and you've got the, the comprehensive chess course of many volume course sort of taking you from beginner to intermediate to advanced level and you've got the very popular um uh pocket book books that you wrote one on your own and one without lawrence um which of which book uh, do you are you most proud that you've written well again i'm really serious speaking i'm most proud of making the course i think there are books <coughs> by other authors and i would be glad to mention some of them i already mentioned uh, talbot Vinik. Zurich 53, there are some books which I think are better than even my best books. But what I think I did almost, the, probably the best, and probably certainly the first, is to make a course. When I begin to write this and publish this comprehensive chess course, there were very, really no, no courses. I want to make a course from beginner to master, based on the same system of chess education which was used for years in Soviet Union, <coughs> and of, of the system, I was myself a product. So I wrote, or as I published, first two volumes, which were written by my own old coach from Odessa, Russia, Roman Peltz, who now lives in Canada. Then I continued the score with Sam Palatnik. Then I wrote 
Rather co-wrote a book on Endgame with Nikolai Krodius, another famous Russian grandmaster who wished to Boris Spassky. And this book also got Book of the Year Award called Just Effects. I wrote then opening books with Roman Dinjinskosvili and Eugen Perlstein. Um, so after, after that, some other authors did their courses, like Yasser Saravan wrote quite a good course. But I think my course was both first and really most, most comprehensive. It's bigger, and it covers greater territory. And um, so I'm, I'm very proud, first of all, of the overall course. If to speak about individual books, certainly the book on Endgame is a great book. It was certainly correctly rewarded the CGA Book of the Year Award. I was even especially pleased when I talked with Helen Russell, my friend and, pub, and big publisher, who told me that uh, my book on Endgame with Crudius was the best book on Endgames ever. And it was even bigger compliment because Helen himself published a truly great book by Mark Dvoretsky, Endgame, Dvoretsky's Endgame course. And Helen told me, yes, Mark, Mark's book is great, but Mark's book is for players at least starting at 2100 level. And your book is starting, say, on 1600 level and going up. <laughs> so yeah, this sort of was, um, this sort of was, uh, I sort of like very much this uh, Roman Pelz's books, volume one, volume two. I really, I really like them all. Uh, to, as far as my pocketbooks, they are also very proud of them. And they were a result of my own experience of as a chess teacher. <laughs> I was, um, when I was playing chess, and especially when I stopped playing chess professionally in the early 90s, I was giving many chess lessons. In those days, I often give lessons also by, by telephone. And to do those lessons effectively, I have several programs which consisted in many positions which I selected myself or borrowed or exchanged with my fellow coaches like, say, Mark Dvoretsky or Dzinzhikashvili or Palatnik and, um, or Peltz. And, um, and I was giving those positions, be it by phone or in person, uh, to my students. Um, and I had given like several thousand of those positions. So I was able to observe which positions have which effect on people, which positions work only with certain categories of students, and which positions have had greater appeal. So, uh, so then I was thinking, okay, maybe I can make a book of those positions like one size fits all. Of course, individually, individually made suit is better. But, uh, you know, if you're, good, uh, if you're good in your profession, you can make also a good suit, one size fit all or something like that. So I decided to make a book of those positions. Um, and my idea was that to be, say, a master, you don't, need the, you don't need to know too much. But you need to know something. And they said make a kind of assumption that you know about 300 positions. Of course, the number is um, not firm. Uh, you can, can be 400, can be 250. And also what, what to call a position. You often can take one position and divide it into three, or you can combine two or three positions in one team. 
but basically it gives you the idea what I was looking for. So I was make I made this <coughs> I made this book three hundred most important positions. I really try to select positions which are really truly most important. So if someone knows them, knows them by heart, he probably knows almost everything he needs to know. Maybe besides opening to become to become a master. And um, let's say a small number of positions, say hundred fifty or two hundred, would make the same for the expert. And they also try to make this not only a collection of positions, but also a training book because in chess we need training. We need we and we we can and we should train our chest mobility the same way as an athlete trains his muscles with different devices. So I make this uh, I make my exercise book um, with emphasis on practicality because many books have and I don't say that the books are wrong, but I think it's my approach was slightly different. Most books on um, puzzles or tests they would either divide uh, position by subjects, which is already a hint, which you don't have in, in the game, or they would decide, at the very least, they would decide by level. Or this is, this is very complex, this is not so complex. But when you play a game, no one tells you if position is complex or not. No one tells you it's even if it's something, it's a knight sacrifice or pawn sacrifice. I even intentionally added uh, some positions where are kind of counterintuitive. Because when you have a book, or when someone asks you to solve a position, you assume it should be something beautiful there. Because if not, why why you ask to solve this position? But in real life, as you know, as a chess player, in most positions, um, a beautiful move is not always the best move. Very often, a normal move. A mundane move is, is the best move. Sometimes you have a, several moves which are good, equally good. So what I did, <coughs> I I put in those in these books, my first book, 300 most important position. I put a couple, probably more than a couple, probably like five or six positions, where as the right move is not a tempting combination, where the tempting combination is in fact. Uh, either wrong can be refused or what is the second best and the right move is really uh, almost all of the above you can look you can play uh, you can castle you can play h3 you can play a3 remember you have several normal looking moves which uh, which are good which are equally good so whatever you choose i may have my still may have some preference i can mention i would here play this way but all other moves are practically equally good, except for the sacrifice which can be refused. And I also try to make hints, like if you cannot solve it, look at the name of the team. So the name of the position, I, I give them, or as I learn, give them various names, like sometimes direct, like night sacrifice, sometimes more sophisticated. So people can, if you can solve it, say in a couple of minutes, you learn, you look at on title. If you can learn, uh, solve it in another five minutes, you look at subtitle, and it will give you it give you hint that help you set to solve it. I also using advice of my friends, my like Mark Varesky, 
really great chess coach, um, whom I often invited to the United States to work with my students. Um, I also make uh, explain in the introduction how you can use several positions to make an exercise. Like because in, in real game when it's often a trade-off between how much time you spend on each move and what is the quality of your moves. So I would give, say, four positions which are on the same spread and the person would know that uh, he has, say, 20 positions, 20 minutes for to solve four, four positions. You solve it correctly, fine, you go ahead for the next position. You solve it incorrectly, you have some time deducted from you and it depends how incorrectly you went, you know, if you, instead of winning, make a losing move, say, you deducted eight minutes. If instead of winning, you make a drawish move, you deducted four minutes. If, if you make, as I mentioned in, some previous, in the previous example, you make a reasonable move, but not the best move, maybe you deducted one minute, something like that. So again, I like this book also very much. And um, um, usually, and of course, I like very much the, the book and the match because again, among us, he gave me a chance to work together with John and computers where John is great. And of course, to work with great Vladimir Kraftnik. Okay. Yeah. And I've been using the chess training book. I mean, I enjoy the puzzles in it, but also it's a good, it's a handy thing for a chess teacher to have because if you ever just need a one-off puzzle, um, the the size makes it easy to carry around and you can just uh, pick one out and it's generally going to, there's going to be an instructive theme on it. And you just answered, we had a question from a supporter of the podcast, uh, Zhivko Stoyanov, and you, you just answered the first half of the question uh, as it happens, but the second half of the question relating to your chess oh. pocketbook, or sorry, chess training pocketbook, is how did you decide on the design and content of the front cover of the first well, uh, uh, in those days I was already working with L. Lawrence uh, who before working with me was executive director of Chess Federation and sort of great expert on advertising uh, later L. was working as director of Hall of Fame in Florida um, so L. was inviting, advising me on the cover and um, so we decided to use um, a model not really a model simply it was it was a Russian girl friend of mine. And um, so we decided to make a picture of us together analyzing chess positions. I think it's quite a reasonable decision because um, the first thing uh, for someone who wants to buy a book, say in a bookstore, you have to take the book in your hands. And if you see something attractive, like a beautiful woman, you probably would, probably would be the first book you take into your hand, in your hands in chess. The vast majority of people playing chess are men. So it was natural decision to put a beautiful woman on on a cover. I was there, but I don't simply. I, I don't think I was really very needed there. Certainly not not to appeal to women chess players, but I was needed there because I, I was after all an author and also kind of familiar face for chess live readers. So it, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that it's something I would do with all of my books. On some books, I have human faces. Um, um, on my first book, by Roman Peltz, uh, Comprehensive Chess Course, Volume 1, book for very beginners, 
I have also a beautiful Russian woman, Anna Malova, who was earlier the second the runner-up in Russian beauty context, I guess, nineteen nineteen ninety, and. Uh, and uh, the daughter of the photographer is as uh, if the mother teaches your daughter. And on the second volume, I was the one photograph teaching photographer's son. So, um, so it's how we make our, our first volumes. But most recently, my my books don't con- most of my recent books don't contain any personalities. Mm. So it's not really something I do always. It was. I think it was it was L idea, L Lawrence idea, and I I think it was a good idea. Yeah, and that was one of your more successful books, right? Yes, yes, it was certainly one of the. Uh, yes, you know, as usual, more successful books were my opening books, which is natural opening books are usually more successful. But this uh, book uh, in this three uh, hundred most important position was very successful. Probably sold like fifteen fifteen thousand or something maybe more and the second the follow-up uh, 320 position was also quite successful but it's selling like 12,000 12, or 10,000 something like that yeah it's interesting to get the actual numbers of what like a popular chess book sells and I, I recently had uh, Andy Soltis on and he was discussing the most popular chess books of all time which I think he mentioned uh, Chess for Dummies by right, James right. Ede and um do you have a sense for what what those sell? I mean, I know Bobby Fischer teaches chess is like legendarily rumored to have sold like seven figures of copies. Did you do you have any sense of what the numbers are like on the the best selling chess books? You know, I also heard very high numbers for uh, those books like Chess for Dummies or there is some other series um, um, chess for. Um, for ages or something like that. Idiots, yes, father, well, yes. I think just for them, I guess I even discuss um, the numbers with the, uh, I guess Peter Kurzdorfer was, oh no, Jimmy was the author, yes. I talk about with Jimmy. I think this book was sold maybe close to 100,000 copies, um, which is excellent for this, uh, enormously good for chess, for, for the chess book. I think this was partly because the book is really excellent. But also partly because it was part of the series, and uh, and was uh, okay. usually from my experience and from experience of my colleagues, both chess writers and chess publishers, usually a chess publisher would publish three thousand copies for the book. This is considered to be a reasonable number. Some modest publishers would publish two thousand. When my books were published by other quite established publishers like um, Batford, for instance, they published. I wrote a book for Batford on Alejandro Defense. I think they published three or four, maximum five thousand copies. I usually published at least five thousand copies. My first print. I often try publish seven thousand copies first print. I'm kind of optimistic about my books, uh, but uh, mm-hmm. usually, of course. Uh, the books which sell the best would be opening books, like uh, when I publish a book with Alex Shergen on Perk Alert, uh, I publish 5,000 copies, and in less than four months, they all have been sold. So in three months, I begin to work on 
in, on reprint with correction. <coughs> in case of Ginger's book on openings, I published 7,000 copies, and in less than a year, both were sold, and they published very quickly a reprint of 5,000. So opening books are doing very, very well, especially, of course, in the first several years. Then they will kind of plateau, which is natural. While other books, like uh, Comprehensive Chess Course, Volume 1, Volume 2 books for beginners, or another, by the way, another excellent book, really one of my favorites, uh, maybe because it was most difficult to produce, the book Chess for the Gifted and Busy, which is really a condensation of all my previous books into one volume, because I came to conclusion, working with my students mostly, that for most of chess players, really most chess players don't have time to work uh, on, on chess as slowly, as meticulously, as often was done in Russian, in Russian chess, where chess was part of curriculum in many schools and so on. So like in my book with Roman Peltz, in first volume, um, I guess we, if we introduce the castle in level in, on, on lesson six, <coughs> which is certainly not something we'll do in America. People wouldn't wait for six weeks, uh, for six lessons to learn the rule of castle. So I decided I should squeeze those things, books, tactics, strategy, assuming that my student is very, reader is very gifted. And, and I would, I'm sure that some of readers are gifted. So that, that's why I, I and L, we created this book, Chess for the Gifted and Busy. And this is also a book which sells very, very well. And uh, we sold first first edition quite quickly, first 7,000, and we sold uh, 5,000, reprint. And now we have second edition, which we also make a reprint of second edition. Um, usually good books on important subjects uh, are selling very, very well. Books which are not so direct, like books of the stories and so on, they sell, but they don't sell that well. But still, I like my books on all subjects. I wrote a book, for instance, of stories and photographs uh, called Three Days with Bobby Fischer. And, um, um, and uh, there's I really give stories about Fisher, which I knew firsthand, which I helped to arrange myself meeting with him, but also give other stories and games and uh, some thoughts about chess. Uh, but uh, like it was more like, like popery. And also, for instance, Ellen and I also make a book, Chess Rules of Thumb, which is mostly for entertaining. Such books do sell, but they don't sell that well. So let's say we publish 7,000 Chess Rules of Thumb, and I still have maybe like 3,000 left after 14 years. But it sells. It sells, but kind of sells slowly. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, I like my books. It also works for me quite well with my teaching chess because when I write books, I have in mind my students. And when I work with students, I often get ideas which I can use in books. So those two things work like hand and glove. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and just a, a couple more questions on books. So are, do you have anything happening now? Are you working on anything currently? Not really. In the moment, I mostly work on um, 
like doing maybe like mostly reprinting some old books, but when I do reprint, I always introduce corrections. I also see also a Lawrence Navier thinking about making a third edition, revised edition of uh, Chess for the Gifted and Busy. Um, uh, well, uh, I don't have any uh, any truly any, any any truly big projects. I you know mostly teach. I keep on my books and whenever necessary I do some again some correction improvement here and there. Um, uh, otherwise, I don't have any any, any kind of uh, any, any any big projects. Um, I work, for instance, with Max Lugi and Anatoly Karpov, and Karpov was here uh, for second time in a row, second year in a row, having this uh, summer camp together at Max's place in Manhattan, so which sort of was enjoyable uh, to work again with such uh, you know such a great player. Um, yeah, amazing that uh, students get the opportunity to learn from uh, from players of uh, that yes, stature. Yes. I think it was certainly a good service for them. You, you, you are right. Yeah. Okay, and one more on chess books, Lev. So you mentioned uh, our, our listeners always like recommendations, and you already mentioned the Tal Batvinik matchbook as well as the two books about Zurich 1953. Do you have any other favorite chess books uh, by authors other other than <laughs> yourself? Of course. I would suggest almost, well, I like books uh, by Bruce Pendelfini. Um, um, he has many books written. Uh, so most of them, if not all, are very good. Some of them are great. My favorite is the book called Chess Doctor, but it's really my taste. It's really an excellent book. Um, also, for those who want to learn endgame quickly, but not very deeply, but quickly and well, or those who want to have kind of um, a book which helps them to review their knowledge of endgame, I would certainly suggest Pandelfini's endgame course. It's easy to use, very good selection of positions. Um, so, so those those two books... Um, Yasser has many good books. Um, Yasser Saravan. <coughs> Susan Polgar wrote many good books, both for beginners and also for more advanced players. Um, uh, Mark Varesky wrote many good books, many great books, really. But those, those yeah, especially sure Varesky's and game course, those go more for for stronger players, for experts and masters. At, at the very least. Um, as we already discussed, Bronstein's uh, Zurich 53 and Niger of Zurich 53 are among two greatest uh, tournament books. Um, of course, almost everything that's written by Capablanca is great. And it's uh, not just because for my reverence for him and his name, but it's really great. I myself often use uh, material from his books with my students or give them to read his books just uh, fundamental for just fundamental for instance basics of chess and so on um also there are books uh, special books which if you want to improve something in your chess you can use books uh, let's say um, like on rubinstein and games uh, there are some books by uh, besides some classical books which mostly we discussed so far. Um, 
there are also books on um, of more contemporary players and writers. Uh, Gary Kasparov's books, My Great Predecessors, are excellent books. And especially, especially like his first two volumes. They, I'm sure the other ones also good, but I think first two volumes are really great and can be helpful not only to, for master and grandmaster, but also can be useful and enjoyable by, by a club player. Um, um, also, uh, book by, books by Boris Gelfand, um, the advanced, serious, but very serious players, book, books by Gelfand uh, would be would be a, 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 would be ex, a, excellent reading. Um, so, so, and I'm sure I'm leaving... Uh, Sunil Vermanter wrote several good books. Andy Saunders wrote some excellent books. It's always entertaining, but also some of them, some of them also very, very instructive. Um, so, so also to, to, to give an advice, I think that one of the best things you can do, especially if someone lives in New York, um, it's not a promotion for a friend, but simply. <laughs> good advice for your listeners, for your listeners. Um, you, you know, you need to look at the, it's good to look at the book before you're buying it in most cases. So if you have a choice, go to normal bookstore, like Barnes & Noble, you'll see big book, chess book selection, so browse through them, and then decide which couple of books you would like to take. Also, New York, in, uh, if you're in New York City, Downtown New York City, there is a bookstore by Fred Wilson, uh, so you can f- drop by. Uh, yes, recently. Oh, recent well, yes, of course, of course. <laughs> so you you can tell more about Fred than I can. So <laughs> you can tell about Fred, Fred. because I mentioned Fred because I often refer to him my students because uh, of course you can go to Barnes and Noble find often same books, but uh, the seller in the Barnes and Noble. The clerk wouldn't explain you how to use chess books. While Fred, while Fred right. especially with introduction by me, what my student needs would often always find something good for this particular person. Excellent. Yeah, and Lev, so you and you've had many sort of uh, successful. Like there was a Bloomberg profile of you where they talk about how you've worked with a lot of sort of. Um, uh, successful finance uh, people from the finance industry and taught them chess and uh, a lot of sort of higher profile and more successful uh, adult students. Um, do you have any advice that you find yourself giving to people regarding chess improvement over and over again? Like, what's your what's your overall philosophy for the uh, the enthusiastic chess hobbyist? Okay, uh, to try again to to make advice like one size fits all, in other words, not detail. Of course, obviously, to give good advice, you need to know the person and uh, advice sort of varies from person to person. But advice, uh, chastic advice, well, uh, for for someone who is not a professional player, doesn't want to be a professional player, uh, but want to play somewhat better chess. Okay, my first advice would be if you like to play chess, play chess. If you can, <laughs> if you cannot ideally combine various types of chess, play by on the internet, but also play in clubs. If you have no time to play in clubs, play on the internet. But even in this case, try to vary. Don't play all blitz games. Play some blitz game. It's fine. If you, but say you spend five hours playing blitz or playing say fifteen minutes per game chess. 
but maybe put another five hours a month and uh, play one uh, long time control game or at least play a couple of one hour per game games on internet. Also, very importantly, analyze your games. Uh, if you play a game and didn't analyze them, you know, you're getting probably, you're getting some benefits, but your benefits are maybe like 20-30% and the rest is wasted. So my advice would be definitely analyze your games, especially those which you played in a little bit longer time control. Um, when you play on the internet, many of my students, not, not complain, but telling me, well, uh, don't pay attention to my mistake here. I was interrupted by, you know, by somebody, my nephew, by my niece, by my son, or by my partner, and, and which is which is understandable. You know, you enjoy chess and you play it at home, so when you can be interrupted by your favorite uh, favorite pet or a member of the family, it's fine. But if you want to be uh, really to judge yourself as a player, to learn more about yourself as a player, try to set aside some time where you're not interrupted. Maybe do it once a week. Set aside an hour or two, where you say everyone is asleep, uh, you don't expect any important calls, so you can play, say, a serious game, say, one hour per game on the Internet or with a friend. And, um, and then such a game, analyze carefully, Spend at least half an hour, ideally one hour, analyzing the game. After you analyze the game, not before, but after, check your analysis with computer. Computer would not tell you why one move is better than another, but computer would, and you don't need computer for this. And you don't really, shouldn't really care much when computer says that why was better by, was it, say, why was better by quarter of a pawn, now why is better but one-tenth of the point is really not that correct, always not really that important, unless it's explained why. But what computer will do to you, for you, is if on one move you would see that the value of white position jumped up three points, so now you white is up four points, and then the next move is back down only one point, what it means that you had a chance to win a piece and you missed it. <laughs> so, so, so you you would look at position more carefully, or you would look at computer suggestion what is best move, and you would say, oh, here I will look a chance. Uh, both me and my opponent will look a chance, uh, you know, to for me to win a piece, for him to save a piece, and and so on. So use computer only as a second, uh, you know, as a follow up for your analysis. And if you have a coach, of course, show show it to the coach after you show it to your, to your computer. Also, read chess books, and I certainly would recommend this book for gifts and busy, but I also would recommend uh, other books. In fact, any book you like, any book which appeals to you. And usually I think it's good to have two books on the same subject, to have one book as your kind of main book. Uh, so you learn from, for instance, from, from that book, you learn, say, how to, say, sacrifice, bishop take h7 sacrifice. You learn from, say, my book, for instance, from Palatnik's book, Chess Tactics. And then you take Seravan's book on tactics and look at the same subject from his book, which is certainly after you already did my book, you would be much better prepared and you would do better. But it also would give you a little bit different angle. 
<coughs> how how to look at the same and, and the same and the same position, the same ideas, and so on. Um, so so again, um, play chess, analyze your games, read good books, read books which you not only need but you which you enjoy. So if you have some books which you read because you need them, like say you play certain openings, so you need a book on this opening, so you you study this book, fine. Or you study book on end games, on strategy, which is good. <coughs> but in addition to books which are good and important, try to have at least one book which you really enjoy. Uh, it can be, say, uh, among such books, I would, for instance, mention a book by Michael Tal, which is called Life and Games by Michael of Life and Games of Michael Tal, by Michael Tal himself. Why I like this book? Tal was certainly a great player. He was also excellent, entertaining writer. And uh, it's certainly a very enjoyable book for many to read. So you probably would benefit from it both, both benefit and enjoy it. But again, maybe someone else would, would enjoy more some another book. So again, that's why my advice, go to the store, go to friends, go to the store, browse through the books, try to find at least one book which you simply would enjoy, which you, you would simply enjoy reading. Um, also, it's always good to have a friend with whom you can play, with whom you can analyze. It is true for great players. It helps to become great player if you have a partner, a friend. It's also enjoyable if you simply do it, you simply doing it for fun. Um, okay, that is excellent advice and Lev I just have I think just one more question from you it's um, it's from a supporter of the podcast uh, Tyron Ross who vis-a-vis uh, -vis competing asks uh, how has age affected you do you have tips for aspiring aging guys like me to try to maintain the brain power I'm almost 60 and getting back into some over the board and online competition okay no I don't have any concrete advice I know that my my friend uh, very famous American grandmother, Arnold Denker, who was not only very great, very and excellent grandmother, but also quite successful businessman and very pleasant person. But Arnold uh, makes small, some kind of research, and he found out that people who play chess, be it great players, but also club players, they usually develop various age ailment, mental ailment on much, much lesser levels than people who don't play chess. And like Alzheimer and other diseases of the mind. And he explained it, um, and his friend's doctor explained it by saying that when you do something mentally challenging like chess, um, this helps, you know, it exercise your brain and help you to stay in to remain healthy and effective and so on. Um, I did that the uh, same God I didn't feel and don't feel any um, kind of age effects on me, except that you know, I walk a little more slowly and I gain a little bit weight because they have nice restaurants in my area and not probably not enough willpower to resist always. But um, as far as my mental state, I cannot complain. 
It didn't affect my uh, writing. It didn't affect my sexual. It didn't affect my teaching. It didn't really so much affect my playing. I, I, I play occasionally. I sort of often play with my students. Some of them are experts and masters. And I play them with them usually children game. I play position where I say I'm worse, giving them various chances to beat me. So I have to fight them back to compete. I often give myself little time, no longer one minute per game, but I certainly can play three minutes per game. Um, and um, I and I do it quite well. I played um, relatively recently, a couple of years ago. My friend Anatoly Machulski was, and uh, our mutual friend Sam Palatnik have been sponsoring and organizing tournaments, so-called Friends Veteran Tournament, not really Veteran Tournament of Friends of Machulski and Palatnik. And I play in those tournaments. I played sometimes with my HPS, and it was... It was interesting games. I also played one of those tournaments. I played with very strong and ambitious young women player like uh, um, Irina Krush, Alexandra Kostinyuk. I lost to Irina Krush, but I defeated, and I think it's very good, really beautiful game. I defeated Alexandra Kostinyuk, who is uh, uh, wow. a very awesome. strong among men player. And it was a good game, and Alexandra was former world champion so it's you know what i can i don't it's and i you know what i put i would say that i certainly don't play as well as i played 30 years ago when i when i was uh say follow or in 1990 when i became for the last time u.s u.s invitational champion but it's i wouldn't even put mostly it's for the ages mostly because uh, rather than studying myself, my own chess, my own opening, I'm now working mostly on what is important for my students. Uh, so uh, my own strength is certainly less than used to be, but it's not catastrophically less. And I'm sure, if, for instance, when I decide to play in those tournaments, tournaments to begin to prepare, I, I remember I very quickly recovered most, at least 50%, probably more of my old so to speak. So um, one thing which certainly can be said that certainly playing chess um, should be helpful to your to someone's brain. Uh, it's very likely other mental activities like Sudoku or whatever also helpful, but we certainly can say, I cannot speak about them, I can speak about chess. Based on my experience with yeah. my students, some of them, I used to have students who were over 90 years old, and quite bright and sharp, and not only in chess. Uh, I think that chess can be helpful, <laughs> and chess also can be enjoyable, and it's really best combination when you have both, something which is helpful, but also enjoyable. Okay, yeah, excellent advice. So mainly, Tyron, just uh, stick with yes, it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, okay, excellent. Well, I, this has been a real pleasure, Lev, and for any listeners who want uh, want more from Lev, obviously you can read his books. There's also an excellent interview in uh, American Chess Magazine that you mentioned with Pete Tamboro, where apparently you guys spent eight or nine hours together, so uh, oh, just, yes, a, maybe well. yes, yes. just incredible detail in that as well. Um, yes. So thank you thank you so much for your time. Um, if uh, if listeners want to reach you, do you make your information available, or would you prefer to uh, to stay off the grid? No, as it were? I'm a public person advertising just live. My telephone is in yellow pages. 
It's two one two one two seven nine four eight seven zero six. You also can give people my email, which is easy to remember. It's GM for Grandmaster GM Levalbert at L dot com so people can email me. And if you have any questions about something, be it chess, books, lessons, or maybe I often receive, for instance, comments in writing or by email, uh, comments uh, regarding my books. And if the comment is correct, I would always use it in my uh, new edition or new new reprint of the book. So those comments are quite welcome. Um, otherwise, uh, oh, one more request to you. I don't know if it would be easy for you to do, but if you would have... Uh, uh, if you will have this printed, I certainly would be glad to read it for myself. And if you will have some feedback from your listeners, um, I certainly always would be glad to listen, to read the feedback. And if it would be something of real interest for you and your and the audience, I would be glad to answer those you okay excellent i will definitely pass along any feedback and as for the transcripts it is on my to-do list but my to-do list is kind of long it's it's not it's not not okay very good so be well excellent and again hope to see you soon at some of chess events in new york okay thank you so much love it's been an honor pleasure pleasure. okay take care Thanks to friend of the podcast, Geert Vandervelt, for supplying the intro music. Thanks to my producer, Matthew Passy, as always. And thanks to everyone who supports the show by telling a friend or writing a positive review on your podcast platform. But most of all, I want to give thanks to those of you who've given financial support to the show. Without you guys, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. I also want to give special thanks to my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners. This list continues to grow, which is a wonderful thing. It keeps the podcast healthy, keeps the episodes coming, and lets me dream up plans to improve the podcast over time. So special thanks go out to Adam Ralph, Adam Vrancouge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Ali Morchetti, Andre Krizdwa, Brian Mullis, Carl Labans, I am Carlos Perdomo, Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Chris Chabris, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Selicki, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, Daniel Vinay, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am Elect, Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, I am Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, GM Yaka Bagard of Quality Chess Publishing, James Bonastia, Jason Woolham, Jennifer Valens, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Hartman, John Jernigan, WGM Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, WGM Katarina Nemkova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gop- Gopalakrishnan, Laura Boyavsky, Lech Ambrose. Ambrzkowski, I hope I did okay there, Alec. Leo Delgado, Lorraine Dore, Matthew Passi, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Nate Salon, Nathan Webster, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Paolo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahalva, Rob Lazorchek, Robert Steiner, Ryan Stone, Steiner Lima, Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Brennan, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouz, Zhao Chang, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, guys. Catch you all next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.